This is October 4th, and it's the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. But the uh, suggestions in the Episcopal Church for a long time now have been that we must always preserve the integrity of the Sunday so that we understand each Sunday to be a celebration or a reminder of the Lord's resurrection. And so we don't bump the Sunday uh, for the Feast of Mother Cabrini's Shoes or something like that, or even St. Francis of Assisi, unless this church was dedicated to St. Francis of Assisi. And then we would celebrate it because it's our patronal festival. So on October 18th, which is a Sunday this year, is the Feast of St. Luke's, and we will celebrate St. Luke's Day and use the collect and the readings for St. Luke's Day on the 18th of October. So I made the decision not to celebrate St. Francis, but to, to keep the Sunday, and guess what? I have Job, a rather tortuous description in the epistle to the Hebrews, and Jesus in Mark's gospel on divorce. There's always the psalm. There's always what? There's always the psalm, right. But one has to you know, suck it up. That's what the preachers have to do. And they have to talk about these things. So I, I think what is, bit, what is suggested by the readings are, what kind of a God do we believe in? How do we understand the variety of understandings of getting to God or understanding God? And how do we reconcile Jesus' comments? Mark's gospel is the strictest. The, the prohibition against divorce is absolute. So we need to say some things about that. And then maybe just a, I hate to say it as a footnote, because that's the whole point of this reading not to, and that's Jesus with the little children and why that's an important thing uh, about people that appear in our culture to be invisible. You know, and we've been struggling in our move towards more inclusion, inclusion and fidelity to the gospel to... Uh, make invisible people a little bit more visible than they were before. It's a good plan. It's a godly plan. So, Job. We're going to read from Job for this week and the next three weeks. Job is part of the wisdom literature. We've been reading Proverbs. We've been reading the book of Esther. And we're now reading Job. Like the book of Proverbs, the Hebrew in Job is superb, some of the finest in the Hebrew Bible. And here's the thing that I want, the juxtaposition that I want to create at the very beginning. In Proverbs, we have been reading, we have been reading, Proverbs is mainly about this. If you do this, this is what will happen. Or the difficulties that we experience, and for that matter, the, the good things in our life that we experience are the result of our own efforts and our own making. Right? So the suffering that you and I undergo are the results of our own actions. 
And in Job, we have a situation where Job is a godly man and his actions are godly and he is afflicted not as the result of anything that he has done, but because of a cruel wager that has been made between God and the Satan. And remember, you've heard me say that the Satan, or Satan, which now has become in the great tradition, uh, I think in all of the Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian, is the devil. But it means in the original language is the advocate. The person who's suggesting to somebody, you know, he ought to do this. So, so Satan is suggesting to God that he uh, play a cruel trick on this godly man and afflict him. And God does it. Now, I haven't got any answers to this other than to suggest a question, which may be as we read through Job, the readings come clearer about how we might think about it. But do you believe that God is capricious, whimsical? That God treats the creation as his play toy? That sort of flies in the face of the belief that God unconditionally loves, accepts us, and forgives us. It does not mean that the, the actions of this life do not have consequences. They do. And it is part of the Christian faith and life to say that. But we put all our trust on God's loving providence and we believe that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. That is an article of faith. And you and I, I would suggest, should not believe that God is capricious, that God does those kinds of things. This may be a story that will, as we read, understand something about a person's faith in the teeth of adversity and suffering. And you know, as much as we would wish it not to be so, suffering is part of living, and suffering is the means by which we grow closer to God. All of us know circumstances where suffering is not redemptive. We see it and we think, good night, nurse. Right? How can this possibly happen? You know? Some great faith traditions, like the Buddha, would say to us that life is suffering. And that the suffering is the result of our attachments. So you and I need to do a big think on what it means to speak about attachment. And you know, when we speak about attachment, we're not talking about the great and grand things or even in the therapeutic culture what people are talking about necessarily. We're talking about attachments to the commonplace activities, like in the screw tape letters where Mrs. Pultney or whatever her name is only wants the perfectly cooked three-minute egg. So we need to do a big think about that. But let me just say, I don't believe that God is capricious. 
and we can put our faith and trust in God and not curse God. Job's wife was all over him like a cheap suit in this reading. Why don't you do this? How badly have you been treated? Yada, yada, yada. You know, we hear this from our spouses, don't we, about what you ought to do. How you ought to behave under certain circumstances when you're going through adversity. Right? On and on and on. Now, the letter to the Hebrews. I've told you this before. I love the letter to the Hebrews now, and I'm actually beginning to understand it. I've been a priest for 40 years, dearly, and I just had, there was a time when I thought, I'm only getting about 10% of this. That's, the, that's a commercial message for reading the scriptures and praying out of the Holy Scriptures. It's important to do it. So here's the, the situation on the ground. The letter to the Hebrews was written by a Hellenistic Jewish Christian which is a big mouthful, but what it means is a Jew who converted to Christianity but lived in a place where Greek thought and Greek culture, which we call Hellenism, was present and they were deeply influenced by it and in all probability deeply influenced by a very important person in the history of ideas, a Jewish Platonist by the name of Philo of Alexandria. And he lived a little bit before Jesus was born. And he wrote a lot about the desire to reconcile the Hebrew outlook, the Jewish outlook, with Platonic philosophy. Okay? So now I'll probably be doing an enormous disservice to Plato. But here's what Plato said. There exists an ideal world of perfect forms of perfection and the world us are not perfect we're imperfect we can only try to approximate the perfect form this is part of of Plato's outlook about things So some of the people who had converted to Christianity who were within the sphere of this letter to the Hebrews were thinking about going back to this platonic worldview. Well, there's a perfect world that we need to aspire to and we're all going to do this and we're going to labor to do it. may have something to do why Christians for so long have wanted to go somewhere else to get perfect. Right? That we go some, to the world of perfect forms. So the writer to the epistle of the Hebrews says this. We have seen in the person of Jesus Christ, in his words and in his works, words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And it says in this writing that Jesus bears the exact imprint of God. And the Greek that is used in that particular section is the same Greek that is used if you were reading some Greek literature outside the Bible about a guy minting a coin where he puts the stamp on the metal 
and he hits it with a hammer and he makes the impress. The exact image. So now we have Father Brewer's most famous quote from the Bible, not in this reading, but elsewhere in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template we lay over our own spiritual life and development. How do we receive this implant? Uh, The Episcopal Church is a sacramental church, and we believe that at our baptism we have received an indelible character. Bang. And it is now with us as we live. Even if we step far away from it, even if we go towards something else, we have that imprint, that presence of God, our true self. And so the writer to the letter to the Hebrews says, you need to understand that that working out the world of perfect forms is not the thing. You and I are instruments of God's presence in this world, and we bring not to perfection, we bring to maturity one another in community as we live together. And we seek to do that, not looking at each other as a project, but as sharing our experience, strength, and hope. That that's something that we do. And that it is part of the Christian vocation, the Christian faith in life. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, this is what we need to do as we understand our quest for wholeness, maturity, completeness. So, divorce. Uh, Mark's gospel has the most absolute uh, restriction against divorce. You might need to know uh, in the Episcopal Church, uh, prior to 1967, uh, remarriage in the Episcopal Church, if you'd been divorced, was forbidden. You may not get married in the Episcopal Church if you've been divorced. And that canon was repealed at the General Convention in 1967. And I went to seminary in 1972, and there were still some of these old fuddy-duddy alumni who'd come back to the campus and say, this was the beginning of the end for the Episcopal Church, just as at this sanctified place, these hallowed halls, all of the students do not have to wear their cassock all the time. So these two things were juxtaposed against one another. It shows you how people have great difficulty sorting what's important and what is secondary, right? What is adiaphora? Things indifferent. So divorce is not indifferent. But here were the things I was taught in seminary. I'm going to read them to you. And it's a mouthful about divorce. The first thing we have to understand is the eschatological horizon of Mark's gospel. The second thing we have to understand is the freedom of the church of the New Testament to modify the absolute teaching of Jesus. 
And the third thing is the role of marriage and divorce in our own day, or understanding something we call from the jump the pastoral experience of the church, which is not an insignificant thing. So, the eschatological horizon of Mark's gospel. Eschatology has to do with the study or the writing about the last things. The end. What's going to happen at the end? All right? And so the author of Mark's gospel was uh, writing at the time in which the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, 70 AD. So he was writing somewhere between 65 and 75. It's the earliest gospel. And it appeared like the world had come to an end. And so everybody had the idea, Paul was like this too, freeze, stay just where you are, because Jesus is coming any moment now. To restore the circumstances that existed prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so here we are. He's not here yet. Right? Our patron Luke said that the church is part of God's plan that had come into being and that we're all constituted to be ready now to welcome the kingdom of God not just into our hearts but in the world in which we live as we wait the general resurrection. That's the promise of the Bible. But we have to be part of this enterprise. And that's why the church is here. So Mark was writing when he was saying, don't, you know, no. No divorce. But here's the deal. I have my Bible here with me. My sword. The oldest writing in the New Testament are Paul's letters, not the Gospels. And in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul says. To the rest, I say, I and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. The pastoral situation on the ground in Corinth. And Paul gives us an exception. I and not the Lord. 
Matthew will give an exception or exceptions. All this means is, is that if you're, in, you're up to your neck in the pastoral life, there are decisions that need to be made through your experience. You know, everybody, there's a lot of people say, well, why has the church changed all this stuff? Or why are they doing it? Have they deserted the ancient faith of our fathers and mothers in order to do this sort of stuff? And you know what the pastoral experience of the church is? We listening to one another. I've been a pastor now for nearly 40 years. I've heard a lot of stories. Right? And if you hear a lot of stories, you begin to change your mind about things. If you believe and take what people say to you seriously. I mean, sometimes people just tell you stuff. But one hopes that you begin to hone and understand your interior processes enough to know when you're being scammed or no. And most of the time, people tell the truth. And the principle that I operate by is that we understand that we believe what people say. Every morning I tell myself, we believe what other people say. That's the starting point. Until... We are disabused of it in some way. So here are the things we need to understand. Now, Reginald Fuller, the great biblical scholar from our tradition, said this about what I've just talked to you about. The point is not that the particular concessions made in the New Testament and these only are valid for all time, but that the New Testament grants to the church the authority to make concessions that are pastorally necessary, while at the same time keeping Jesus' absolute prohibition before men and women and making it clear that anything short of radical obedience is sinful in the eyes of God, and therefore in the need uh, in need of forgiveness. Now, here's how that's handled in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greeks, and the Russians, and the other ones, or most of the other ones. You can get divorced and remarried in the Orthodox Church three times. Don't ask me why three, right? But the important thing is, if they consent to do this, there's, you know, uh, in the marriage liturgy in the Orthodox Church, there's a section for people who are being remarried where in the liturgy they affirm their sin and failure in their past marriage and they ask God's help and assistance for this time it to work. So let me tell you how pastorally it was handled in a big example in the Church of England. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, when he married Charles and Camilla. When he married them and used the marriage liturgy, he had them in the middle of the liturgy kneel down and say together the general confession. 
which is what we say in our tradition. The general confession is not in the marriage liturgy, in our liturgy, or for that matter, in the 1662 liturgy. It's not in there. But he put it in and said, I want you to kneel down and say this. Right? That you, all of us have fallen short. But we still put our trust in a loving God who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. What a great thing it is. It's a privilege to preach that to you, I must say. So, at the end of uh, today, this week, think about uh, how God is not capricious and doesn't treat you like a play toy. You know? He's not keeping score. He's not looking for an opportunity to let you have it. He's looking for the opportunity that you turn toward him and put your trust in him. And also think about how you understand perfection and what it means. Plato was probably speaking about morals in the sense of morality. One of Socrates' friends, Glaucon, said, people only do the right thing if they think they're being watched. you believe that? I think it's true sometimes. But I don't think it's true all the time. And think about the fact that in the midst of all of that, God still loves you. And in the midst of uh, maybe falling short in some of the big decisions you've made, that God is there to hold you up. Amen.